Yeah, let us regather. Again, it is great to be with you. The peace of God be with everyone. And um, it is my joy, again, to be leading us through our continued journey in First John. So we are today entering our third week of five. We're, we'll go through First John. As a refresher of where we've been, what we've explored, um, over the last couple weeks, we started First John 1, and we looked at the theme of confession and sin. We looked at the theme of confession, sin, what that means, how we interpret that, how that impacts our life. And specifically, we looked at how for many of us, maybe our relationship with confession has been a little, uh, a little scattered, or it's been a little challenging. The way that confession has been framed for us and invited in for us is perhaps something that creates shame or feels distancing in some way. In many ways, that arrives because of different expressions of what sin is, different understandings of sin. So we looked in that sermon first week. It's online if you would like to recap it or revisit it, how in different uh, parts of Scripture— Sin is described using different metaphors. In the Old Testament, the dominant metaphor for sin is a sin uh, understood as a weight or a distance that is put on you. And that distances you perhaps from God or from community. And so, in the Old Testament, you uh, would pray and put your sin on a lamb and then send that lamb away. And that would be the atonement or the, uh, the thing that re um, re-cleanses your life. That's one thread of what sin looks like in the Old Testament. Then as you go through the the scriptures, there's different metaphors that exist. Some look at it as legal standing. Others look at it in ways that are more therapeutic in their nature. And so in that first week, we looked at a variety of ways that the metaphor changes, and the metaphor exists through scripture. If you're interested in a book about how to trace out all of the different types of themes, Gary Anderson from Yale wrote this book called Sin, A History, and he looks through the different ways that that expresses in the scriptures. We also made a note in terms of the reception history. Christianity is a broad faith. It's global. That means that in the faith, there's different ways that uh, faith and language are expressed. Different parts of Christianity and its development bring ideas into how we understand this gospel. And so we made a note to say, uh, it, for Western Christians, we typically land on describing sin as some kind of legal status. We're a sinner or we're a saint. Right? We're clean, we're unclean. There's something that we've done to put us from this category into this category. And Jesus is the one that clears our name, that gives us, uh, gives us a new name. And so we have this metaphor for Western Christianity. The Eastern Orthodox side, so this is predominantly Greek-speaking churches, all in the development of Christianity, really took a different approach to how we understand what sin is. And for them, that model that they used in the, the image that they wrestled with was to talk about sin as sickness. And so sin as sickness changes the nature of how we engage um, what repentance is, how we engage what confession is. 
In the Eastern Christian tradition, the metaphor that dominates is, uh, is therapeutic. Sin as sickness. And in contrast to Western Christianity that presses us to see God as judge, Eastern Christianity, they really emphasize God as physician. God as physician. And so we see both types of metaphors in Scripture. We see both kinds of approaches in Scripture. What this means is in our reception of it, in our conception of it, if sin is sickness and not judicial indictment, then that means forgiveness is healing, not a changed legal status, which means when we encounter God, we don't encounter God in the courtroom. We do it in the doctor's office. And we understand God to be a physician, not a judge. Different ways that we imagine what confession and sin is. So we spent that whole first week really doing a thematic dive into what does 1 John say about confession, sin, and what does that mean for us? How do we look at that theme impacting our life. It led us to think, this is why confession matters. Confession matters because it isn't about being stirred up to pay our dues and then use that currency as motivation to live a certain way. Instead, confession is an act of acknowledging things in our lives that are consuming our health. Sin is something that consumes us. And confession is a way to set us on a trajectory of healing, not just with ourselves and God, but with others. This is why confession is an act we do amongst people. And in some traditions and expressions of Christianity, it's something you do with people uh, in even more vulnerable ways. And so confession as an act, it brings for us the acknowledgement that we can say, There's something wrong in my life, whether it is viewed as sickness, whether it's viewed as legal standing. There's something happening that God is inviting me to find wholeness in. Confession does that. And so for the last couple weeks, we've had a station over here. We'll invite people into that later again this week. Um, But what that brings us to is last week, we had Amy Wilkinson, guest preacher, speak with us. And she gave us an articulate vision of God's love, of the Father's love. So she went into the next chapter, and she gave a very structured three-point sermon about how we can look and discover God's love, the Father's love, what that means for us. In this, she, uh, she really described how God's love looks like this. God's love, it's healing. God's love, it's, uh, it's complete. She said, God's love is self-sacrificing. God's love, it teaches us how to love. And so she went through these points that come up from the text, that come up from 1 John 2. She did it really well, and if you, again, would like to engage that sermon, it's online again. Um, it's a way to look at the different ways we've been journeying so far as we go from the theme of confession and sin to here's a very uh, detailed dive into uh, the love of the Father, the love of God, and how that shows up in First John uh, as a book. So week one, what is sin? What is confession? Week two, what is love? This week, we're going to build on this, and the question I want us to ask is, what is truth? What is truth? It's an apt question, I think, given 
the world we live in, where there's so many claims for saying what? This is truth, or that is truth. How do we know what truth is? And so we're going to do that this week, and then for the next two weeks after this, we're going to spend time looking, how does what we've looked at through 1 John impact our life, and why does this all matter? Why does this matter? So again, we're going to look at what is truth today. That's kind of setting the stage for where we've been. And uh, if you would, join me in prayer as we come to the text, and let's receive from God. Let's posture ourselves to receive. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day. We are grateful for the way that you allow us to hear your voice. We pray that in my speaking, in our time together, that you would uh, come through clearly. We pray this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. So, 1 John 3, verses 16 through 20, if you would, we're reading from the, uh, from the NIV translation this morning. This is verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This, friends, is God's word. I want to begin with a question. And what pops into your head when you hear the following words? You don't have to keep track of them, but just pay attention to what pops into your head. Ready? The word joy. What pops into your head? Think about it. Ruminate on it. The next one. Grief. What about love? What do you think of when you hear the word love? Anger? This last one, truth. What pops into your head when you think of the word truth? Any takers? What pops into your head when you think of the word truth? The heart. Thanks, Lauren. Others? Truth. A cornerstone, something steadfast or firm that way, yeah. Truth, I love that. Pure light. I love it. Others? Danny? I think I like asking, what is truth? Yes, yeah. The question itself. <laughs> Steel. Uh, a shield? A shield? I love it. I love it. Notice, like, as we're imagining and as we're thinking of the first thing that pops into our our mind, what we're seeing in our mind's eyes. We're not seeing words spelled out with letters. Every one of us has images that we're hearing. 
images that pop into mind. The architecture of our minds are designed for images and metaphors. And those metaphors are oftentimes strung into stories. They're things that drive us, and they give our words meaning. They they energize them. So every word we have is, in some way, a, a metaphor. The last thing our minds create is the words themselves. Today, we are going to do a type of sermon that I don't think we have ever done here. And part of why we have been pressing into different expressions of preaching and different ways of sermonizing is we had a thematic sermon week one. Week two, we had a more linear-styled expository sermon. This week, we're going to do something called a semiotic sermon. And this idea is the the way that you take, uh, you read a passage, and you see what verse is being enlightened, coming to you. And then from that verse, you dive into what images exist behind key phrases or words that happen in this passage. And then you trace that image through the scope of Scripture. Now, the reason we are doing this, the reason why we are stressing different ways of preaching is because if you imagine you're in a classroom, we want to be able to engage all the students, different learning styles, different ways of encountering. And yet for many of us in preaching spaces, we've been socialized to have a very particular type of voice. And that type of voice doesn't oftentimes hit everyone in a congregation. And so our motive, our intention is, how do we hear God in ways that are unfamiliar to us? Because as we do that here in this moment, where we're dedicating time here to hear from God, we also begin to form ourselves to hear God in people and in places and in vernacular and in ways that don't even claim Christianity as its faith tradition we begin to start encountering God outside the walls. And so it's a formational thing that we're trying to do here as we engage different types of sermons. So I share that to say, this is going to be a little different, but I do think it will be engaging enough to engage the images and see how our life shows up in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. We said at the beginning of this year that we want to encounter Jesus every time we gather. The irony of us currently experiencing words and speech with the assumption that we're hearing uh, and recognizing truth is that in our passage, did you notice how in that verse, verse 18, it sections out truth from words and speech? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Actions and in truth. For most of us, if we've grown up in church, we imagine like the words and the speech, that is where the truth resides. But this verse intentionally pulls it out because this whole book, for context, is a sermon. 1 John is a little different than some of the letters we have in that it's not a written correspondence. This is designed as a sermon. And it's designed to be expounded on and discussed and to be shared and presented in that way. Now, letters were read 
publicly when they arrived in a location, but they had a different intent. They had an intent to perhaps hit on a particular idea or theme um, and to talk to a particular audience. This is a more general sermon that's given and sent. And so as we think about this, again, you can hear the irony of the words. Someone's reading this to people, and they're saying, the truth doesn't reside in the words that you're hearing. The truth resides in how you act after hearing. The truth resides after you engage what is said. Not just on the receiving or the the ability to regurgitate, but the active engagement. That's where we know truth resides. It's striking that this happens this way. Because if we look at what truth is, the word in Greek there is aletheia. Aletheia. That means unhiddenness. It means a state of not being hidden. It means unconcealedness or unclosedness. Now, that's a little different, perhaps, than how we think about truth when we imagine that image. The image behind it for most of us when we think about truth is something that we assent to. Truth is something that we engage with our mind. It's something that we grasp. And as we grasp that, that grasps us. In Christianity, the translation of this word um, from aletheia, which is this closeness, this... uh, um, this unclosedness, it changes when we have the creation of a a translation called the Vulgate. This is a Latin translation of the scriptures, and this translation didn't have a word to capture what Aletheia is saying. So it translated as veritas, right? Something that is verifiable. That's how we know that it's true. It's verifiable. But in this image... When you lose that richness, here's how we're going to trace what's happening through Scripture. It's not to say that Veritas is wrong. It's to say it's an incomplete picture of the way that God is trying to invite us to encounter truth. So the image of unclosedness, unhiddenness, the thing of being able to open yourself up, This ties us back to the very first image we see in Scripture involving humanity. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have Adam and Eve. Adam literally translates to humanity. Eve translates to life. And so you have this presentation of humanity and life together, being woven together in the way they engage each other. And God has been for them, defining good and evil. And so through that Genesis story, we have God create creation and then says, and it was good. Create the birds of the air, and it was good. We create all of the things, and it's good. And what God's doing is defining good and evil all through that first two stories. And then we get to Genesis 3 through 11. And what you start to see is, if you trace the stories, you start to see a spiral that happens when we each define what is right in our own eyes. 
And so through the book of Genesis, you'll get from 1 through 11, and there's this trajectory where people begin doing what's right in their own eyes. And you start to see the effects of what happens when you start to be your own God. When you start to say, this is how, uh, this is how I'm going to structure my life. I'm going to do it for the protection of me and what's mine. I'm going to do it for the protection of me and my tribe, me and my family. So the story right after this is going to be Cain and Abel. Our passage in 1 John 3 today actually references the Cain story where it says he killed his brother. He does it because he's viewing something that says he has what I should have. He's viewing the world in a way that serves him, that's pointed at him. The whole thread of Genesis 3 and all the way to 11 can be viewed as a spiral that traces out what happens when we each define what is going right by our own eyes. Adam and Eve, they start defining good and evil in their own ways, with their own interests in mind. Sin is viewed as an inward turn to do what's good for me. It severs ties with others. It ends up cloaking yourself, hiding yourself, closing yourself off to anyone else other than yourself. In this beginning story in Genesis, sin is expressed as hiding, as hiding. I said we looked at some of the metaphors that you see later on where sin is expressed as distance from God. Sin is expressed as a weight that is crushing and that needs to be alleviated. We can see sin is expressed as sickness. We can see sin is expressed as something that affects a community. In this beginning story, sin is expressed as hiding. And so if you look at that story in Genesis 3, we won't read the whole thing. Uh, we won't read it today, but take, a, take time to read through what's happening. The first thing that Adam and Eve do in that story after they awaken to become their own gods or become uh, someone who dis- directs what their direction wants to be in, the first thing they do is they hide from God. They turn inward from God. The second thing they do is they hide from themselves. In the story, they come to a recognition after going away that we need to hide from ourselves. And so they cover themselves. They cloak themselves. The next break that we see in the story is they break from each other. They don't identify as each other. They say, Adam says uh, to God of Eve, the woman you gave me doesn't name him, doesn't name her, but says, the woman you gave me, creating distance, is a break that happens. They break from each other. The last thing they do is they break from creation. They break from being stewards and tenders of the garden that they are invited into at the very beginning of the story. Sin expressed as hiding, it causes us to hide from God, hide from ourselves, to break from each other, and to break from creation. 
Are you seeing how the image that exists behind that word truth, the cloaking, shows up in the very first image, in the very first story of Scripture? A mentor of mine talks about it like this. Christianity is a hide-and-seek story where truth finds us. And it invites us into the story to seek out others. To seek out others. This idea of hiding, of cloakedness, I wonder if you've ever heard us say that distance exists when we sin between us and God. There's a chasm that can't be breached. What's striking in this story is as they have sinned, as they have turned inwards, as they have broken their relationship off with each other, with themselves, with God, with creation, the striking thing in the story is that God walks. And it doesn't say where he walks to. It says God is walking in the garden. And the striking thing about this image is that the readings that exist, the dominant reading that existed before the creation of the Latin church, the Western expression of church, was that God was walking not away from humanity, but was walking towards humanity. In the garden as God is walking, God's walking towards humanity. And the promise embedded at the very first instance we see of sin is the promise that even if you cloak yourself, God will ask, where are you? Even if you cloak yourself away, you try to hide yourself, God will walk towards you. From the very first introduction of sin also comes the first introduction of the love of God. The love of God that is so profound, it will walk towards you even when you don't want to be found. Not to shame you, but to make you whole. Not to put a legal status on you, but to heal you. To help you find a trajectory of healing, not just for the sake of your life, but for the sake of all creation. This is how the story and how truth itself unfolds from the first story in Scripture. We have this instance of us becoming our own gods. We then experience the effect of that, which closes ourselves off from others and from creation. It requires and it leads to us covering ourselves from not being able to show who we are. And in that story, God chases us down. Says, where are you? Christianity is a hide-and-seek story where truth finds us and invites us into the story to seek others. This leads us to reimagine how truth functions in our life. Because if truth is an unveiling, if truth is an opening, if truth is the ability to be undisclosed, to be completely open, think about what that does to the concepts that perhaps we've experienced in religious spaces. I shared this in our first week sermon, but it's worth repeating. That sometimes if shame has been developed in how we've engaged sin or talked about it or uh, engaged it in church spaces, there's a recognition that shame never produces holiness. It only ever produces hiding. 
never produces holiness. It only ever produces hiding. It can maintain an, a, a, a posture or a projection of holiness for a time, but it never creates long-standing change. It means that we sit on a razor's edge. We live on eggshells. Friends, that is not the life God wants for you. That's not the purpose of confession. That's not why we confess in the first place. Confession is liberative. It's generative. It's healing. It's captivating. Confession helps us realize that our lives and actions have a wide effect. We all have the capacity to impact and shape the world. God desires for us to shape the world in partnership with God. It's like in Romans, all creation is longing and groaning for humanity, for the sons of man, to engage the vision of God. So in this passage where it invites us to think about truth and action, think about spoken word, and not to just denounce it, but to say this word comes alive when you do action in truth. It starts to shape our lived reality. If you're reading this passage in a different translation, the message translation, I love the way that Eugene Peterson Eugene Peterson kind of like distills down different threads than other translations that show up. Take a look at this and listen to these verses. This is from the message. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers. And not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. Just a note there, we, we don't just hide from God's love. We can actively hide God's love in the world around us. My dear children, let us, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. When you've encountered the truth, when you've reflected on the truth, have you ever experienced debilitating self-criticism? When you have opened yourself up to others, when you open yourself up to the world, to God, has that thread ever showed up in your life? The love of God does not desire to control us made this distinction last week, but it's worth repeating again. There's a difference between the love of God and lust of God. Because lust is only interested in what someone can do for me. 
That's what it means to lust. Love opens us up to recognize the impact of my life and also to recognize the impact of God and others in my life. Lust is a one-way street. Love is a mutual relationship. Love opens us up to recognize the impact of confession for the community that we hold together. When we think about the love of God that invites us to encounter the fullness revealed in all of creation, what we start to do is, as we open ourselves up to the truth, we begin to be opened up to reimagining the story we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The breaches we have between ourselves, the breaches we have between Eve and Adam, the breaches we have with creation, the breaches we have with God, those are redefined. As we open up, as we unveil, and as we project who is the God we're supposed to encounter, who is uh, the way that we're presented to God, how do we do this well? This is the gift of truth in 1 John 3. It makes the link for us as a, in the sermon. And he'll continue on. If you trace out the sermon, he'll, again, we'll talk about the sin of Cain. He'll end this chapter in 1 John 3 by introducing the Spirit. And so if you trace, again, this book, it goes 1 John 1, confession and sin. What does it mean to be light and darkness? 1 John 2, what is the love of the Father? 1 John 3, you have this tracing of openness and closeness to the love of God. And now let's get to the Spirit who hovers over creation and who invites us into the act of creating with God. This is the first instance we see of the Spirit in 1 John. And it's right at the, uh, the middle point, the high point of the sermon. Again, this is a book that's meant to be heard and read and experienced as a sermon. The trajectory of the sermon, it goes up and then it will continue and then start to lower and land the plane. And so in that way of imagining this uh, immersive way that God is opening us to the truth of God, how does this image sit with you? How does the way we've traced this image sit with you? From 1 John to Genesis and through the conception of sin itself to the semiotic image behind the word to the way that the expression of God in this form uh, invites us to see God. How does this sit with you? In a moment, we are going to take communion. And we'll also have time to uh, come to this station over here and write confessions that we would like to offer to God in the midst of community. We invite you to participate in these ways, not for just ourselves as a church to say, look, look at all the things out there, but for each of our own sakes. There is goodness to be found. There is healing to be found. There is wholeness to be found in our first acknowledgement of things that are keeping our life from being whole. Things that are uh, making us unwell. 
our encouragement is in the midst of singing, in the midst of taking communion, that you would write, if there is things in your life that you need to confess, write them and put them up there. And no one's going over to read them, to check them. It might feel like a huge step. But I do invite you to do this because it is the first step of an embodied act that then can open yourself to conversations you might need to have with other people. We do recognize confession is not just something between me and God. It involves others. It involves people. But it might just be this first step that opens your heart, that unveils your heart, that makes you open to having conversations with people you need to have conversations with. And so we encourage you to do that and to, uh, to do so freely, knowing that we are all in this place broken people. And we all in this place are in need of redemption, a touch from God, a movement in the right direction, a moment of healing. We invite you as we take communion to also consider going to that space. The act of communion, as we talk about opening and closing, of veiling and unveiling, is an act that, as we participate in it, we join ourselves to other. As we participate in it, we join ourselves to the, the thread of people who have proclaimed the Lord's death until the day that Christ comes. And so we have in this space a shared cup, We have shared elements that are bread or cracker connected to each other. And the hope is, as we participate, we recognize that I am not doing this journey alone. My hope for you that extends beyond what we normally say is that as you participate today, may you come and allow yourself to be opened up to the truth of God. Perhaps you've heard this before, that truth isn't just an object or something we assent to, but truth is a person. Truth is Christ. In some ways, when we unpack that thread, what we are unpacking is an openness to say, God is revealed in my life. God is showing up in the way that I embody life well with others. And so as we participate and partake, let us do so, knowing that God desires to meet us in here. That these are elements that impart the goodness of God to us. They also symbolize and uh, act as things of remembrance for us to assent to. And they shape our life in very real ways. And so, closing out today, I'd love to invite the band up. But let me offer a prayer. A prayer that doesn't end when we say amen but ushers in our time to the table, ushers in our time to confession, ushers in our time, if you need prayer, would like prayer, we have people who could pray with you, and perhaps we'll do it over here uh, on this left side. If you are interested in prayer, uh, we'll have a couple of people sitting on this side. But we want to be a community that is open to the fullness of God, that says, God, we don't have to have it all together. And God, you are the God who meets us in the ways that we can be open with who you are. Receive this prayer, friends, and then let us continue and uh, begin this act of communion here.
God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for how you reveal your truth. And that your truth isn't something that we just take hold of. But your truth, indeed, it grasps us. And it asks us to open ourselves up to the weight of the world. It asks us to open ourselves up to saying, God, you are our God. It asks us to open up and say, I'm not going to live by the, the motivation that is just me and my own. But I recognize you call us to a higher ethic. You don't call us out, but you call us up. You call us up into life with you. And so we pray that as we partake in these elements, as we practice confession, as we worship And as we come with expectant openness to the movement of your spirit, that you would meet us, that you would form us, and that we might reflect you well in all the ways that you are at work in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, and settle on us today. We pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. I'd love to invite our servers up. We will have for communion... um, These are all gluten-free crackers, and we'll have on this side here uh, intinction. And so you can take the cracker and then dip. And then on this side, I'll be on this corner. um, And these are sealed um, packages already that are ready for you to take if you're a little um, more—if you need something like that on this side. So we'll have one station here and one here. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And God invites us to come. It's made for those who have been here often and the people who have not been here in a long time. It's made for everyone who desires to encounter God and those who want to know God more. It's made for you if this is your first time. We invite you to come and receive the goodness of God in a nourishing way. We invite our kids back and to participate with us. The life and energy that is flowing in here, may that be nourished by this meal. Friends, come receive and let us uh, worship together.